Be found on the inside of the bulletin. And we're looking, we're in the book of Luke, chapter 20. And, um, Lee Ellen. Yes, that would be wonderful. No, 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 I'll read it. I, I look at you because you're just so darn beautiful. That's the issue, jeez. If looking at you is wrong, I don't want to be right, okay? All right, Luke 20, 9 through 19. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at this very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. The word of the Lord. Well, as I recently uh, examined my wife and my TV-watching habits, I saw that there was a parallel, a theme running through them. We seem to like crime shows. And we only watch, we don't watch a ton of TV, but uh, uh, Foil's War, anyone watch Foil's War on the BBC, on the telly? Uh, it's a detective story in a world, uh, set in World War II. Uh, Elementary uh, and, and Sherlock. And, uh, you know, there are these, they're these crime shows. We seem to like crime shows. And I'm, you know, the thing about these particular crime shows that I like is they all have what I call the aha moment, right? When you're paying attention, you know, trying to figure out what's that one clue, who's the one who did it. And at some point, you know, the final clue is revealed or the interpretation and there's the aha moment when everything falls into place and makes sense. As I read this passage, I thought to myself, this is, uh, there's an aha moment in this. It's like the people of Israel are listening to Jesus and at just the right time he turns the corner and all of a sudden the light goes on. They have an aha moment, but they don't like what it is that they see. I'd like to think that the scriptures have many aha moments in them, but perhaps we miss them because we don't recognize that the Bible all too often is talking not about them, but it's talking about us. See, the reality is many of us are willing to examine Jesus in the Bible. But very rarely are we willing to let Jesus in the Bible examine us. It's been said that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And so what I want to suggest to you is that there are three aha moments in this scripture. Now I could tell you what they were, but that would spoil everything. 
So my three points that I'm going to talk about are the aha moment one, aha, aha moment two, and aha, ha, ha moment number three. The question, of course, I have is this. Are we willing to let the Bible examine us? For when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Well, let's look at this passage. Jesus is in the final week of uh, his Passion Week before he goes to the cross. He has cleansed the temple already and he has, in effect, taken it over. And he has been preaching the gospel. And the authorities, the chief priests, have already come up to them just in... Uh, the passage right before this that I preached on last week and asked, by what authority are you teaching these things? Jesus, of course, turns the tables on them. And he goes on to tell this parable. And parables were exactly designed to create aha moments, to get behind people's intellectual defenses. And so Jesus tells this parable about a man who planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and then went away for a long time. Well, we know something about this man just by the fact that he was the one who planted the vineyard. It means he's a landowner, and also he's extremely wealthy. Now, we kind of look at this passage and we think, well, he just sort of turned over the land and then he went ahead and said, you guys do all the work, but it doesn't say that, does it? No, he planted the vineyard. And if you know Israel, in the, uh, is a mountainous country, so uh, on the plains they grow wheat or grain, and they grow uh, wine on the sides of the mountains. And in order to do so, they have to terrace the sides of the mountains. They have to dig and cut into the sides of the mountains. And they have to make these sort of steps so they can create arable land. So this man has spent considerable money and time planting a vineyard. And now he has rented it to farmers. Now keep in mind, this is this man's... Uh, money that he spent and so in renting it to farmers he has had his pick of the litter so to speak he has selected the ones he wanted to join with him in his venture it's a great honor and responsibility that these people have been chosen they must have had a nice resume because he chose them and they get the opportunity to prosper see they don't have any land and so they can't do anything but this was a common relationship a joint venture in which these people would work the land and as a result they would get to share in the benefits. Both would benefit if the vineyard was successful and they would get to leverage their work into land, so to speak. This landowner went away for a long time. Often seems in parables that they go away for a long time, don't they? And so harvest time finally comes and he sent some servants to the tenants that they would give him some of the fruit. Keep in mind, this was a good landowner. It wasn't all of the fruit. It, wasn't, it was a joint ventureship. But the response of the tenants is quite surprising. Though that they had agreed already and contracted on some set price, they beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. The Greek here actually uh, would denote a beating that is a savage and repeated beating. This is not simply sort of a, no, we're not going to pay. No, there's almost a vindictiveness to it. In fact, it was such a strange thing that the landowner decided to send yet another servant. Something must have gone wrong. Maybe the servant was 
uh, you know, wrong, was, was rude or I don't know. So he sent another. But the scripture said that they beat and treated this one shamefully and sent them away empty-handed. Another parallel passage says that they beat him. In fact, they struck him repeatedly on the head would be the translation. And then they treated him shamefully. You could just as easily use the word they mocked and humiliated this person. So rather than simply physically pounding on them, they also emotionally made sport of him. And once again, this servant comes away with nothing. Now one begins to scratch their head at the judgment of the landowner as he sent still a third. And lo and behold, he got the exact same treatment, didn't he? It says they wounded him and threw him out. That word wounded, traumatizo in the Greek, is from where we get the word trauma. Blunt force trauma, most likely. And also trauma in the way that they treated him. If we use our imagination, we think they're almost making sport of their cruelty toward these servants. And they not only sent him away empty-handed, they threw him out of the vineyard. Now as the crowd is hearing this story, you can imagine what they're thinking because they are all, most of them, they live in an agrarian society. Many of them are either landowners or they participate on the other side as workers. And their blood is beginning to boil, isn't it? At the sheer injustice of this. This is the structure upon which their life and their economy is based. Their way of doing things. And the anger is beginning to mount. And when Jesus said, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? In verse 13, I'm sure it was all that the people could do to restrain themselves from shouting out, kill him. Kill these people. The answer is obvious. What shall I do? Are you insane, landowner? Take care of business. These people have indicated what they think about your leadership and ownership. It's time for you to take matters into your own hands. And so... When Jesus spoke the parable of the landowner, I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. There must have been a resounding no that came out from the audience. Notice that the landowner says, what shall I do? In other words, I have options available at my disposal. I have the law at my back. Nobody is going to give me any problems from sending in the Calvary and wiping these people off the face of the earth. But instead, he says, perhaps they will respect him. In other words, this is not a done deal that when I send my son, it's obvious that they're going to fall in line. No, he understands the risk of what he's doing and yet he decides to do it anyways. And lo and behold, are we surprised when in verse 14, when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. There's a calculating nature to it, right? It's like they talked the matter over. They pulled back. They dialogued. They conferenced. And they decided to take it to the next level. See, beforehand, it was simply saying, we're not going to pay you what you're due. 
But now, we're going to actually take what is yours and we're going to make it ours. This is going to become our vineyard, not your vineyard. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Think you could have heard a pin drop then, like in this room. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. This is the aha moment. See, why are the people responding, may this never be? The people should be saying, absolutely, it's about time. Go and enact, take your vengeance out on these people. And yet the people are saying, may this never be. Because it was about time when they heard about the son that they realized that Jesus was talking about them. See, they know in Isaiah 5, 7 and numerous other places that Israel is referred to as the vineyard of the Lord. Isaiah 5, 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. Israel is the vine. And who is this son that's been sent? It's the one who's standing right in front of them. May this never be, they said. And Jesus turns to them and says, well, why is it written then that the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be crushed. That the stone the builders rejected comes from Psalm 118. The same psalm that just a couple of days ago, the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You people, you are the ones who are going to reject me. You are the ones that are going to kill me. And there will be a consequence. For everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. I'm sure Jesus was looking directly at the religious leaders at the time. See, they were sort of getting excited about justice being done, right? This is wrong. We've got to do something about this. And yet, when Jesus points the finger at them, they say, oh no, oh no. We would never do something like that. But multiple times Jesus says it was your parents that killed the prophets. Who are these servants that have been sent by God again and again? Their names were Hosanna, excuse me, Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. Well, it's easy for us to condemn Israel and condemn these people. But I want to suggest to you that there's an aha moment for us too, isn't there? Because this passage isn't just talking about Israel. It's talking about us. We're in every single story of the Bible, whether we recognize it or not. Because the ultimate vineyard was not Israel. The ultimate vineyard was the earth, right? Did not God plant this earth and speak it into existence and give the soil and the land and the trees and the plants and did he not give it to someone to care for it, to produce its fruit? And does he not deserve 
the produce, the fruit of the labor. Man was designed to work in the vineyard of earth and to produce not apples and oranges, but fruit for the glory of God. See, my friends, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Life is a test. Life is a trust. And life is a temporary assignment. There is a responsibility for this earth. It doesn't belong to us, does it? It belongs to the one who made us. Even the most simple person can understand that we are not in control of our lives. The beating of our hearts. That there is an accounting. There is a reckoning for my life. There are scales in which I will be weighed. But much like these people, have we also not said to God, no, my life is mine. I can do whatever I want. I don't owe you anything. Have we not also at one time or another said to the son, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Remember that serpent. When you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. See, the aha moment is we're just as guilty as they are. May this never be. We'll never do it. But the truth of the matter is we're all guilty. I came across this ICCJ, the International Council for Christians and Jews. And it's a cooperative of 40 different Christian and Jewish um, um, agencies that come together. And they were talking uh, in this land. There was a recent conference in, uh, in uh, Belgium and it was a Jewish Christian conference. And basically what they communicated from this conference is that Jews and Christians both are children of Abraham's and Jews are elder brothers and fathers in the faith. And so the Jewish religion is not extrinsic but intrinsic. And so there is no uh, replacement or supersession theology. They speak in specific of the Catholic Church neither conducts nor supports any specific institutional missions work toward Jews. In other words, God has never repealed or evoked his covenant with Israel and the gifts and calls of God are irrevocable. Therefore, Christians don't need to evangelize Jewish people. Now, wait a second. I'm reading this. I'm not picking out Jewish people. I could go to eight different other conferences and find the same thing with Muslims or with other people or so on and so on. In other words, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. Whoever this Jesus person is, he isn't that important to the equation. What's important is sincerity. But what we're seeing from the scripture is no, no, no. God the Father has sent the Son. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The one who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. We want to take a sideline toward Jesus Christ. We want to sort of put him in his box as a teacher or a prophet or a somebody, but not the Son of God. And surely he has no rights to demand anything upon me. But the question we have to ask is simply this. Are you a spectator in this story or are you a participant? Is this 
his world or is it ours? Are we the master or is he the master? We can only have one master. And so we must choose our master. We must recognize that he is the father or we must try to kill the son. There is no other option. What will you choose? This brings me to my second point, the second aha, aha. You've got to ask the question, why send the son at all? I mean, honestly. If I'd put myself in the landowner's shoes, why send the son? Why even waste my time? In fact, it says, I will send my son whom I love. Now, if I had to do the math between vineyard and my son whom I love, I don't care that much about the vineyard that I'm going to put my son in harm's way. And yet he sends his son whom he loves. We've heard these words before, haven't we though? Where God the Father speaks loudly in front of everyone. At Jesus' baptism, when he's coming out of the water and the Spirit comes upon him in the presence of a dove in front of all those onlookers and John the Baptist. Here is my son whom I love, whom I am well pleased with. And what about on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John go up and they see Jesus transfigured before in holy glory, speaking with God the Father. And a voice from God comes out of the cloud. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. What shall I do? I'll send my son. The only logic that one can put into this is that the value of the relationship that the landowner has with the tenants is so great that even after all that has happened, he's willing to risk sending the most important thing he has. His greatest heart's desire is not retribution, but rather reconciliation. But that doesn't make sense either because it's very clear that he knows what's going to happen. Now I'm talking about not the story, the analogy, but God himself sending the son Jesus, right? There is no perhaps they will respect him if I send Jesus. Remember 11 chapters ago where Jesus was already communicating to the disciples. The son of man will be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and crucify him. And on the third day he will rise from the dead. Multiple times throughout Jesus' ministry, he communicates that he knows he's going to be killed. The son comes not to talk sense into the people, but rather to be betrayed. And much like the people in the story, we say no. It's the ultimate wrong that you would send your son so that he might be killed. One who is perfectly innocent and holy and righteous and comes in a loving way to be savagely beat and mocked and traumatized and thrown out of the vineyard. And was that not what happened when he was led out of the city and crucified on a cross? But it's in this story that there is the second aha moment. 
that somehow in God's cosmic justice, the ultimate right is stronger and has the ability to transform the ultimate wrong. That if the Son goes willingly, and if the Father willingly sends the Son, that even in the face of this open rebellion, that this savagery, that the love and grace of God is so powerful that it can move the darkest heart to repent of their sins, to do a literal 180, to move from open rebellion to rejoicing submission. See, what needs to be changed of these tenants is not their practices, but their heart. They need to be freed from their tyranny to be God. It's a prison that they're in. That they have somehow bought into the lie that being king of the universe is what I am meant to be. Here's the problem of why people are so miserable in this life. You ready? Because he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. People that don't know Jesus, whether they realize it or not, are in a continuous rebellion against the Son who has come to supplant His place as the rightful author of the universe. And I don't know if you've ever run into a brick wall or not, but when you do it the first time, usually it hurts so much that you don't do it again. But these people, and dare I say us, to Christians, at one time or another, continue to run into that wall again and again and again and knock ourselves out and get up again and keep going. Why did God send the Son? He didn't send the Son for retribution. He sent the Son for rescue. He sent the Son to save the tenants. See, Jesus willingly died by my hands that he might rescue me from death by his hands. One of my favorite uh, paintings, pictures, I think we have a picture of it up here. I remember seeing this. I was a new Christian and I went into uh, a Christian bookstore as an 18-year-old to get my first Bible. Went out on a date. It was kind of cool. Lied to my parents. Sorry, Mom. Went to go get this Bible and there was this picture and I thought to myself, what a powerful picture. And what was it about the picture that sort of drew me to it? And I think what drew me to it was the fact that the person that Jesus was holding still held the hammer, still held the spike. And yet Jesus with his hands, clearly you see the spike marks, is holding up this man. It's a beautiful picture of the grace of Jesus Christ. If you look down on the body, you may not be able to see it. There's a river of blood. This painting was uh, painted by Thomas Blackshear, by the way. We see that it's feeding the lilies on the side, that there's this peace, there's this new life that's coming up from his blood. And we see the anguish and pain upon this man. And yet Jesus reaches into this man's life and picks him up and holds him. I waited patiently for the Lord. No, I didn't. But he inclined and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit. 
and out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock and he made my footsteps firm and he gave me a new song to sing, a song of praise to God. How do you see the sun? See a soldier or see a savior? Did he come to throw me out or did he come to rescue me? Will you be satisfied with the world and yet lose your soul? Or will you drop your hammer, drop your nail, receive his embrace? Because the ultimate right subsumed the ultimate wrong. Death could not keep its hold on Jesus Christ. And he rose from the dead and he is alive. Christ did not come for repayment. He came for rescue. And I could never pay him back. But the aha moment is that he came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the worst. And that his grace is greater than my rebellion. And his forgiveness is greater than my sin. And his plan for my life is greater than the one that I have. Because Jesus willingly died by my hands that he might rescue me from death by his. My final aha moment. The beauty of life now is that we can come alive in Christ. We are still living in a vineyard, aren't we? Is it not still the earth that God created? And has not God given me a new song? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Therefore, I tell you, as another passage says, a parallel passage, I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away and given to a people producing its fruits. The beauty of the aha moment is that I'm a new person in Christ. The old one that he took it away from, he gave right back to me to produce its fruits. And in fact, it says producing its fruits. We can produce fruits today. We don't have to live the old story of rebellion. But rather, we can live joyfully and expectantly for the coming of the king. Producing fruits in keeping with the righteousness that God's called me to. What are these fruits? Fruits of love and joy and peace and goodness. They're the fruits of declaring the glory of God in what I say, in how I live, in the skills and talents and gifts that I have. It's the fruit of the gospel of Christ going forward and people being brought from death to life at my work, in my family, in Cherokee, North Carolina, in the places that we go. Did Jesus not say four months more and then the harvest? Don't say that. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for the harvest now. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. The beauty is the sun is going to come. The sun has come. And the sun is here.
For did not Jesus say, go and make disciples of all nations? And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We get the opportunity to live in this broken, fallen world, spreading the knowledge and the glory of Christ because he has rescued me and restored me and revivified me and put a new song in my mouth. The aha moment is salvation is here and now. And God calls us to a higher work. So see your life as a test and a trust and a temporary assignment. Produce fruit. Be a part of God's work so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Well, I don't know if you've had any aha moments. I have. The greatest one that I will take with me from this place is this. Jesus willingly died by my hands that he might rescue me from death by his hands. That's a great inheritance, isn't it? So let's go out and live it. Today, tomorrow, to the ends of the earth, to the end of time, until he comes. And we don't say, let's kill the sun, but rather we rejoice and long for his coming when all will be made new and there will be no mourning or crying or death or tears for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Amen. Let's pray. God, if I let the Bible examine me, I am the tenant. I repeatedly rebelled against you that though my life and my works belong to you I wanted them to be mine but Jesus you came not for retribution but for rescue Lord I pray for myself and for everyone that we would recognize the fact that there is no greater love than he who gives up his life for his friends and Jesus you have given us grace beyond grace let us live as servants joyfully under your lordship in your vineyard, producing fruit to your glory and to your pleasure. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.